When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right side stood Mathia, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkai, and Masai. And on his left were Pidiai, Pishael, Malachi, Hashan, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And he opened it, and the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sharabathi, Hodia, Manasseh, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Philia instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in a temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the west gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, 
and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Back in 1906, James Fraser spent 10 years praying for revival among the remote mountain Lisu tribes of China, and yet there was little to show in that decade. But when God came in power, village after village came to faith. One Lisu lad went around preaching in all the villages. He knew very little about Jesus. He preached, but whole villages burned their demon shelves and became Christians. James Fraser writes, imagine what it is to have become between five and six hundred families, so a thousand people, them looking to you as father, mother, teacher, shepherd, advisor, pastor. It's a big responsibility. Rightly or wrongly, I went in for big things when I went to China, and I do not regret it. I believe that to a large extent, we get what we go in for with God. Only sometimes we have mistaken ideas as to how it will come about. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you've taken up God's call to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, to make the good news about him known. So if you like, our church is a, we're a mission center. Every Sunday is a recommissioning to go and make Jesus known at home, at school, at work, amongst friends and family. And I think James Fraser is right when he said, I believe that to a large extent, we get what we go in for with God. And so my question to us this morning is, what have you gone in for with God? So think of where God's placed you in this particular season of life. Are you expecting? Are you praying? that the Lord would use you? Are you going into this brand new week expecting, God, would you use me this week to make Jesus known? Are you praying big things? Do you believe in, do you pray for revival? Supernatural outpourings of the Holy Spirit? Because truth is, we need God more than we realize. We need gospel breakthroughs in the lives of friends and loved ones. In our church life, in conversions, whole life, long life, freedom in Christ. In our personal lives, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to break in and fill us with love for God, with repentance, with with joyful obedience, with holiness, with faith, with victory over our besetting sins, our, our habitual sins. And when God revives, he normally starts with his people. And in the next two chapters of Nehemiah, we're going to see what happened when God powerfully moved in revival. And we're going to see that in the lives of God's people in Jerusalem back in 445 BC. And my prayer is that this will, this will grow my, our hunger for God. So the context is that God's people, they returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem to the ruined temple and the walls, uh, the city walls that have now been, by this stage in our our reading, have been restored. The temple is restored, the city is restored, but their mission 
was bigger than architectural restoration. They'd come to rebuild God's community. And so it's just a few days after the city walls rebuilt and completed, Nehemiah, the governor, he assembles the people. He gets the nation together. It was the seventh month. That's the Jewish New Year celebrations. And it was here that the power of God fell. And revival broke out. And we're going to see three things this morning that characterizes revival. Here's the first one. Understanding and worship. Understanding and worship in verses 1 to 8. So try and picture the scene. There's thousands of people in Jerusalem for the New Year celebration. Look at what they do and just sense their hunger for God in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. That's what was known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. By nature, we don't want to be taught the Lord's commands. And one evidence that God is at work in your life by the Holy Spirit is a hunger to be taught by God in his word. That is a supernatural Holy Spirit thing. In the 1940s, revival broke out in the Madras region of India. And people literally came alive to God's word. One church leader describes an evening in October 1940 during the monsoon season where a large crowd had gathered, including mothers with babes in arms, and they sat on the ground for hours in the pouring rain, soaked to the skin, listening to God's word being preached. No one wanted to go. And the leader explains it like this. For a wind of God was blowing through Madras, and the showers that watered our hearts were showers of blessing. Now, on this day in 445 BC, God's people, they can't get enough of God's words. Look at verse 3. Ezra reads from God's law from daybreak until noon. And verse 3 says, they all listened attentively, hanging on every word, expecting God to speak to them directly. Through his word that he had given centuries earlier. That is what they did. And I trust that's what we are doing today. Now. I got an email a while back from a pastor who was uh, brand new to his church. And uh, his prayer letter struck me. This struck me particularly. Even more encouraging has been the number of conversations I have had with people in the church who are actively expecting God to meet with them and address them through his word each week. So a really good question to ask is, as you come to church on a Sunday morning, how expectant are you? God's going to speak to me today. And maybe you're thinking, oh boy, I mean, uh, Sunday mornings, World War III normally breaks out in our family between the kids Um, And you're so thankful for that weekly miracle that seems to happen between the car park and the front door. And you just about turn up uh, looking like a a together family. Maybe actually you come feeling alone. 
I'm wondering, how am I going to fit in this morning? Or maybe you're distracted by life's busyness and worries and pain and temptations and sins. And you know, all of those above real things that we come to church with on Sunday morning, well, they're precisely why we need to come expecting to hear from God, aren't they? It's in your situation. We come as we are. Praying for God to speak powerfully to you through his words. Praying that you'll meet him. Praying that you'll respond to him in faith. Well, look at the response of the people here in verse 4. Ezra is standing on a high platform with 13 other leaders. And verse 5, as Ezra opens the book to read, the people stand. We should have done that this morning. (laughs) It's a sign of respect for God's word. God was speaking through his word. They stand to attention, but not for long. Look at verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Amazing. We don't worship the Bible. Or, or come to just fill our heads with Bible knowledge. Now, the purpose of having the Bible right at the center of our worship together is that we might experience God himself and worship him. And that is why there should be an extensive expectancy and awe as we open our Bibles, as we hear it read and hear it preached. Maybe, just maybe, Uh, you've felt like the person who said, there's a fine line between a long, drawn-out sermon and a hostage situation. Have you ever felt like that? Um, I do remember uh, preaching to a congregation one time of 10 people. And uh, about halfway through my sermon, I noticed that four of them had gone to sleep. And uh, I was reminded of the preacher who noticed a man sleeping in his sermon and so he he'd spoke to the, the man next to him and said, can you please wake him up? And the guy responded back, you sent him to sleep, you wake him up. It's a fair call. It, it is a preacher's greatest crime to take the living, active word of God that reveals the living God and gives life and to make it sound dull and boring and irrelevant to God's people. When we understand God's word, we literally hear his voice. It's how God speaks today. We experience him and we know him, all he's done for us in Jesus. And that is why understanding the Bible is so important. And so not only is Ezra and his team reading from the platform, But look at verses 7 and 8. What's going on in verses 7 and 8? There are 13 Levites who are in the crowd instructing the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So, try and imagine the scene. There's, there's, There's Ezra on the platform. He's reading from God's word. And then the leaders, 
They're mingling with the crowds, helping them to understand. I mean, it's not dissimilar to our, our preaching and life group model that we have here at church. So Sunday ministry on Sunday is then explored further in the week in small groups. And the idea is that, that we're trying to make it clear, um, giving the meaning, exploring application more personally. And in life groups, we don't, we don't come together to simply you know, discuss our own ideas about God's word or to have a good old controversial debate. No, we come together to help each other understand and apply what God's word is saying, that we might know him better and enjoy him more. To have our ideas about God, about the Bible, changed and shaped by God's truth as we explore it together. Currently, we've got around 80 people in one of our eight life groups. And what a blessing they are. A place to get to know a few more people, but more personally, where, where friendships develop with a few. And in that context, we grow together as disciples of Christ around God's word. And can I say this morning, if you're not in a life group, we'd love to plug you in. Come and speak to me um, afterwards. Because understanding the word of God leads to worshipping God of the word. Understanding the word of God leads to worshipping the God of the word. That's our first thing in this chapter. The second thing is this, um, that characterize revival, and it's holiness and joy. Holiness and joy. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now this is uncomfortable because when God revives, his word makes us grieve over our sin. You think of when when, um, Peter was in the presence of Jesus. He said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When we come into the presence of God, many things happen. One of them is we become aware of his consuming holiness and our inadequacy, our sinfulness. And the Bible is like a mirror. We look into it and we we see ourselves clearly. We see ourselves as God sees us. We see that our lives are before him. A Western missionary describes revival in North Korea. In 1907, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Some people began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. People would rise, confess sins, break down and weep, and then throw themselves to the floor and beat the floor in perfect agony of conviction. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched towards heaven. Everyone forgot each other. Each was face to face with God. I can hear yet that fearful sound of hundreds pleading with God for life, for mercy. The cry went out over the city till people around were in consternation. Now those are remarkable scenes. Unusual scenes. I I imagine none of us have experienced anything like that. 
In Nehemiah's day, they wept as God's word exposed their sin and their lack of holiness. And it's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does through his word, the Bible. One of that's happening in your life today. Where, as a Christian, you're, one of the marks of your spiritual growth is that you're becoming more aware of your sin, more sensitive to it, grieving more over it. But the Holy Spirit of God doesn't leave us there, wallowing in our sins and in, in, in a sense of grief, down in the dumps of, of failure, crippled by guilt and shame. That, that is what, so, so the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, but he does lead us somewhere to the answer. What the devil will do is he will condemn us and leave us wallowing. Be aware of that. The Holy Spirit always convicts of sins and points us to the answer so that we end up actually joyful. That's what happens here. Let's have a look at it. Um, look at what Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, so Ezra and the Levites say in verses 10 to 12. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a brilliant um, verse. The Levites calm the people, all the people saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They now understood that, that God's word not only had exposed their lack of holiness and made them cry with sorrow, but also helped them understand the answer to their sin problem. Verse 10, that the joy of the Lord was their strength. What does that look like? Well, let's try and, let's try and imagine what it might have looked like for them. Um, they, they're reading through the first five books of the Bible. And as they read God's law, they would have come to another national festival, actually just 10 days after this New Year's celebration, the famous Jewish Day of Atonement. Brilliant day in the, in the national calendar. The priest would lay his hands on the head of a goat. They called it a scapegoat. And he would confess the sins of the people. And then they would send the goat far away into the desert. And you know what that symbolized? It symbolized their sins being taken far away. They're forgiven. And so the joy of the Lord's forgiveness, that was their strength. And even more so for us today, we don't look back to a desert scapegoat, to one the Bible describes as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God's Word tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, taking our punishment. So if we, have, we trust in his death for us, our sins, they get taken away and we're forgiven. You know, truth is, you and I don't have the strength to live a holy life before God. But by trusting in what Jesus did for us there at the cross, taking the punishment for our failure, our rebellion, that is how our lives get transformed and empowered to live a holy life that pleases God, full of joy in him 
with the joy of the Lord being our strength. Jonathan Edwards writes of revival in Northampton, New England, many years ago, and he describes this. The work of God soon made a glorious alteration to the town so that in the spring and summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable signs of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. Can we dare to pray for God to pour out his spirit on us, on our community here in revival? But a question for us. Is God the Holy Spirit using his word, the Bible, to do these two things in your life? On the one hand, convicting you of the seriousness of the rebellion in your heart that's still there against God. Your apathy and your pride. So that you grieve over your sin. But then secondly, blessing you. By helping you to see from the Bible that joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not strength in yourself. It's, the strength is in him. That through Jesus you're forgiven. If you're trusting in him for salvation. And then empowering you to live a holy life. With Jesus is your joy. So holiness and joy. Lastly, the third thing that characterizes revival here is pilgrimage and joy. And this is verses 13 through to 18. The next day, Ezra, he's surrounded by eager people. I wonder if you notice that in verse 13. The heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, they gather around Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. Now look at the impact of this family leader's Bible study with Ezra. In verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. What they discovered in the Bible was what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Centuries before, God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And for the next 40 years, the whole nation had, had been miraculously looked after as they wandered around in the desert. They camped out rough in the desert before they were brought to the promised land of Canaan that God had given to them. And the Feast of Tabernacles was an annual thing to remind them every year of God's care when they lived in tents in the desert on pilgrimage to the promised land. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles was den builders' heaven. It really was. They were to go down to the woods, collect branches, build a camp in Jerusalem, and actually, as family and friends, live in it for seven days to remember the 40 years under canvas in the desert. What a cool idea. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles had been remembered, but it seems that they no longer actually were building 
and living in these, these temporary shelters. They've been living in houses for years and it seems they've become a bit too civilized for camping out in homemade tents. Now imagine being a kid. Imagine being a kid. I mean, it must have been infuriating. It was like boring adults who got hold of the Feast of Tabernacles and they'd taken all the fun out of it. No tents. So they didn't have to the hassle of living in a kid's den for a week. But imagine being a kid in Jerusalem in 445 BC. They must have had an absolute ball. Look at verse uh, 16. So the people went out and bought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate and the one by the, the gate of Ephraim. The whole company had returned from, that returned from exile, built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. This was like, this was like it must have like Glastonbury comes to Jerusalem. And center stage every day for seven days, God speaking to them through his word. Look at verse 18. Day after day, for the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days. I've been thinking about this. It's not, I don't think it's a bad idea for our, our church weekend 2024. Um, so um, it could go like this. It's a kind of a, a silver D of E uh, version of a spiritual retreat. I'm not sensing loads of enthusiasm here, but um, here's how it could go. We, you know, we go out to the woods um, somewhere. Uh, we build dens, everyone, um, friends, family units, whoever it might be. Um, and we camp out for the weekend in our dens with loads of Bible teaching. No, it's not going to work, is it? I, I think I'll be on my own with my family, probably not even my family, actually. Um, but seriously, look, what is the takeaway? What is the takeaway from the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, I think it's this, that God had warned them as a nation of the danger of when they get settled in the promised land, that they become prosperous and they forget God. And now as they resettle in Jerusalem with secure walls and gates, this Feast of Tabernacles helped remind them to not make this world their home, their ultimate joy. Their homes were temporary. God was to be their joy. They were still people on pilgrimage, traveling through this life to be with him. And being reminded of this, verse 17, brought them great joy. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, then the New Testament describes you as a stranger, as an exile in this world. You're traveling through. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Christians in Corinth, even describes our bodies as an earthly tent that one day will be taken down, will be destroyed, and replaced with a heavenly dwelling, a body to praise God forever. And having this sense of pilgrimage about our lives that this world is not our home. We're just traveling through to be with God forever. That brings great joy. Our joy diminishes the moment we try to make this world our home. And we try to make this life and its experiences our ultimate joy. Because those things were never designed to do that. 
our capacity for joy and satisfaction, it is so great that the things of this life cannot ultimately handle the pressure. And we spoil them if we expect too much of them. They simply can't deliver. Our capacity for joy and for satisfaction were designed by God to be ultimately fulfilled in personal relationship with him. And that is why anything less than knowing and loving God himself through Jesus doesn't ultimately and lastingly satisfy. And one of the marks of revival in the church in a materialistic secular culture is when God's people live and act as joyful pilgrims. Living in this world, but marching through to a different drum. People whose lives and priorities and dreams shout loud and clear, we're camping. We're traveling light through this life with God and to God because 99.99999% of the blessings of the Christian life are in the future. That shapes how we use our money. Shapes how, what we buy. It shapes how we react when people break our stuff. (laughs) I can be so grumpy when people break my stuff. When I break my stuff. How do you react when your stuff gets broken? It shapes how we use our time. It shapes how we journey through suffering and illness. It shapes how we face death. Let's not settle for mediocre Christian living. Let's pray to God to pour out his spirit in renewal, even revival, so that our understanding of God's word does more for us than kind of aha moments of of seeing things clearer, but brings us to worship and adoration of God. So we go beyond being just mildly thankful for salvation to being overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord being our strength. As we see more clearly the extent of our sin, and we weep over that. But equally, we see more clearly the extent of God's strong love for us in Jesus. and We rejoice in that. So we don't just know we're going to God's eternal future. But we travel light giving our lives to take as many with us as we can. And all of that for the glory of God.